All right, we're in Acts chapter 4, right near the end. We're going to move into chapter 5 today. You know, in the beginning of things, when God placed the pinnacle of his, his creation, us, human beings, in a garden, there was one rule. Only one rule was really needed. There was no deep darkness in the human heart at that time. Man was innocent, as they say. The rule was simply the creator's way to have men affirm that they are indeed under his rule. He only needed one rule to establish that. The first couple were to actually rule the world for him, taking dominion over creation for his glory as these wonderful, unique creatures made in his image. Creatures with a mind to reason, with a moral sense to distinguish right and wrong, and a will a will to choose their path. The one rule kept the distinction between the creator and the creature clear and that was going to be there for that purpose. Keeping the rule would always be our first parents way of affirming God's place above them. That he's the creator and they're the creature. It affirmed their loyalty to God by keeping that rule. So breaking the rule had serious consequences. In fact, God had told them, Genesis 2, 17, you will surely die, or as the way the Hebrew says it, dying you shall die. Well, they broke that rule, and death indeed began its tragic work in them and in all who are descended from them, because we all inherit their sinful nature. And we all affirm that nature over and over again by choosing sin ourselves. The New Testament simply says the wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6 verse 23. So these are things to think about as we move from Acts chapter 4 to a shocking story in Acts chapter 5. Last time we looked at the great prayer that was made to the Lord by the early church in the face of government threats. They were ordered to never preach at all about Jesus and they prayed for boldness to keep testifying about Jesus and the Holy Spirit showed up in Acts chapter 4 verse 31 to embolden them. He did do that. He even shook the room they were in. And after that, Luke will do, um, he's gonna do what he did when the Holy Spirit came the first time on the day of Pentecost in a dramatic way. He gives us sort of a summary of what life was like for this new thing called the church. So I want to kind of compare the first time he gave a summary at the end of Acts 2 and this new summary he's going to give in Acts chapter 4. So Acts chapter 2 verse 42 it says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's just a great passage. So we talked about that as a model, a model Christian life, church life, uh, a model for us to look back and emulate. That's what church should look like. Then came the great miracle in the temple in Acts chapter three. Peter and John find this beggar who had never walked 
and they made him well in Jesus name and it draws so much attention that Peter launches into this great gospel sermon and he and John before the sermon's over get arrested. They spend a night in jail and they have a trial the next day before the great council where Peter preaches Christ as the only savior the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved and he and John um, well they're given the commandment after the council kind of pulls back and confers they come out and they order them quote not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus Acts chapter 4 verse 18. So Peter and John go back to the church and in unity the whole church offers up this magnificent prayer to God not for their safety but that they would speak out with boldness. That was their heart. And that brings to a conclusion the story of the miracle in the temple. And that's where we ended last time. Verse 31 of Acts chapter 4. So Luke makes a choice then after this prayer and after the coming of the the spirit again to do what he did after the Pentecost sermon. Uh, Once again he gives this summary statement about the first church and how they conducted themselves. But now it's the church under threat. And you know what? It's just like the church before. They haven't changed what they're doing really at all. It's uh, going forward just the way it should. So Luke writes his summary so that we would see the church function as it did before. You're supposed to make this comparison in your mind. So Acts chapter 4 verse 33. With great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. So you can probably see the parallels right away. The chapter two summary and the chapter four summary have really three main ideas in common. One is the apostles teaching and their testimony Chapter 2 verse 42 said they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship. And here it says with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Second there was great unity. Chapter 2 verse 46 says the church met with one mind. And here it's one heart and soul. Verse 32. And then sharing. Um, We see in both summaries uh, with this testimony, this unity and then sharing. And they shared willingly. Chapter 2 verse 44. They had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions. And were sharing them with all. As anyone might need. So it was something that a lot of people were doing. And here again in chapter 4. They are regarding their property. And resources. As though everyone was family. And a family has a need we share with them. Verse 34 and 35. So let's look again at that. Verse 34 where Luke gives this detailed description. There was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses. Would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. And lay them at the apostles feet. And they would be distributed to each. As any had need. So Luke is going to use this description. This summary description. To launch into the next section. Where a very shocking miracle takes place. So it transitions kind of beautifully into this next event. This idea of bringing the proceeds of selling property is followed by two examples. There's a good example and a tragic wicked example. So I'm sure um, you'll be shocked to hear that there were there were sins in the early church. Some people actually sinned. 
I know you're not really shocked about that because we all have sin, right? Uh, we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But let's look at the good example. It's, it's no accident that the first example just happens to be a key figure being introduced for the first time in the book of Acts. We know him as Barnabas. And here's how Luke introduces him, verse 36. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he's an example of what Luke had just described in the summary statement. He's bringing that um, sale from, all the money from the sale of a land and bringing it to the apostles so they can give it to the poor. And we get some really nice detail about Barnabas here. He's Jewish, he's a Levite, so he's of the priestly tribe. He's from Cyprus originally and the apostles so appreciated his ability to lift up other people who were downtrodden or discouraged he actually got a nickname uh, the son of encouragement. In Jewish, Jewish culture and language son of means characterized by so if they say you're a son of such and such you're characterized by that thing. So he was an encourager and so that's what they call him the son of encouragement. So for our story this, this godly man owned some land, sold it and brought it to the apostles for distribution. Now in chapter five we see a man who wanted to be viewed in the way that Barnabas was viewed by the apostles. But his heart wasn't right either in his actions or in his desires. So verse one of chapter five. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it he laid it at the apostles feet. Now we don't have his words but Ananias had to have said something along the lines of I've sold some land and I'm bringing the full price of it to be used for the poor. He could have said I sold some land and I wanted to donate 80% of it for the poor and that would have been absolutely fine. There was no rule, there was no expectation any that everyone had to give up all that they'd made off any sales or anything like that and give it all to the church. People were doing that and Barnabas out of love was doing that but no one had to do it. It wasn't required. Ananias was doing it to be seen doing it. Um, to build up his spiritual reputation. So it's really a heart issue here. That's what distinguishes the good from the bad here, the, the wicked from the godly. There's a kind of spiritual vanity with him that might go along with just greed, but uh, I think the spiritual part is the main problem, not the greed part. It wasn't greedy to hold back 20%, but it was greed to hold it back when something in him wanted other people to think he was a special holy person by giving all of it. So he was greedy not just for money but for reputation, for spiritual standing. I, I think that's the best way to say it. He was greedy for spiritual standing with other people. He wanted man's approval, not God's approval. And that is Phariseeism. That's the essence of what it means to be a Pharisee. Remember what Jesus called them? Actors. And so he's acting, he's lying about how he wants to be perceived as the super generous person when he was a generous person but um, he kept some back and he, he lied to enhance his reputation with men. So he, he, the Pharisees played like they were holy but their hearts were not holy and that is common, uh, that's not uncommon in any church for Christians to have that issue going on. It's not uncommon amongst ministers to have that issue going on. Uh, but you know what? 
we don't serve the Lord for recognition by men. It's nice to be acknowledged. Barnabas was just the kind of guy to say, good job, you are a real blessing today to somebody that did something he appreciated. But we don't need that to serve the Lord. We don't seek that to serve the Lord. We shouldn't need it. We can't always know our motives. But the Lord does know all of our motives. In fact, the Bible says the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. It's 1 Chronicles 28. Nine there. He knows us better than we know ourselves. We are not always sure about our motives, are we? Sometimes we have mixed motives. Sometimes they're very complex. But we should be aware of wrong motives as we are able, as we are able to understand ourselves and we should pray to God and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to ourselves any motives that are improper so we can confess them. You know your motives are wrong though. You might wonder about your motives sometimes but you know they're wrong when you choose to sin and that's what Ananias did. If you're lying, eh, you know the, the buzzer goes off and uh, you know you're a sinner. You know that your motives are wrong right there. So Ananias, he thinks he's getting away with something but he's at a horrible disadvantage here. Um, he's got a disadvantage most people don't have uh, from a sinner's point of view. You know, people lie to me sometimes. It actually happens. But I can't always tell. In fact, I'm pretty just, I'll take whatever you say unless I have a really good reason not to believe something. But it's never good to lie to an apostle. That's just not a good idea. In fact, it's kind of dumb. An apostle is a prophet. In fact, an apostle is a prophet plus. And the Holy Spirit speaks to to prophets and the Holy Spirit speaks to apostles. He tells them things. He tells them things that only God knows and God does know the motives of men's hearts. So the Holy Spirit might be saying to Peter for example this man is lying. He's held back 20% of the funds for the poor. So Peter knows. He doesn't know magically. He knows by the Holy Spirit actually telling him. So it's instructive to watch how Peter handles this He actually does what Jesus did sometimes in handling sinners. He asks questions. And it's a smart way to deal with these kind of things to ask questions. But his first question is a direct confrontation of the actual sin going on here. Peter said Ananias, verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? So there's a couple things going on here. One it's clear that giving in to lying is giving in to Satan. When, when we lie, we're giving in to Satan. He wants a Christian to be a liar. He wants a Christian to be vain, self-exalting, and disobedient to God, and behaving in dishonorable ways. That's what Satan wants to do. And the, the sinner thinks nobody sees, but that, that spiritual forces are not really involved in a serious way, but they are on both sides. So sins are against God first. This is the second thing. Ananias was lying to the apostles but he was really lying to who? What does Peter say? To the Holy Spirit, right? So now the question in verse four is Peter says while it remained unsold did it not remain your own? And after it was sold was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men but to God. So again the lie was against God. Now hold that spot right there in our story and and I just want to 
for a moment just talk about the theological implication of these two verses verse 3 and verse 4. They are clear proof that the Holy Spirit is God and clear proof that the Holy Spirit is a person. So the Holy Spirit of verse 3 is equated with God and in verse 4 you can see that you can lie you can only lie to a person so when he says you lied to the Holy Spirit you're lying to a person you can't lie to a force now some cults say that the Holy Spirit is not a person it's a force or a power or something but he's, he's being lied to so the Holy Spirit of verse 3 is equated with God and, um, and then in verse 4 um, it's actually called it's the, the exact equivalent is made there um, oh I'm in the wrong place you have not lied to men but to God there's a direct correlation there between the Holy Spirit and God so you've lied to the Holy Spirit you've lied to God equal so keep that in your pocket whenever you're talking to a cultist um, this is a good passage for that anybody that denies the Trinity so let's get back to our story Peter is very clear in his questions that Ananias knew that he wasn't obligated by the church to give the whole amount you can tell by the way Peter said that he says before you sold it it was yours right Uh uh-huh and after you sold it the money was yours right yeah so he's not saying hey that property really belongs to us or that money really belongs to us he's saying you knew that it was yours to do do with what you wanted to right so then he asked the question why is it then those things being true that it was yours to do with what you wanted why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart and that's the that's the great question that's a perfect question for Peter to ask so he says you knew this right yes you knew this right see how he's dealing with him yes so what was going on in your heart when you decided to do that? So he wants Ananias to think about his Phariseeism, his vanity, his spiritual pride, his desire to be seen by men as something wonderful instead of be honest before God. So what's really going on in there Ananias? That's the question. Can a believer sin? Oh yeah, oh yeah, we can sin and believers do sin, right? It's, it, it's the height of wisdom then because we sin to ask ourselves, why? Why have I conceived this sin in my heart? What, what motive is going on in me? What do I need to repent of? See, that's the value of those kind of questions. We all have our unique sin battles, all of us do. We're not in glory yet, right? So in this life, uh, our spiritual walk is, is a battle and we need to listen to God's word that, that mirror by which we see our true selves and can expose the motives of our heart. The Christian life is a battle on earth and Paul says it's a battle with the flesh. That's the phrase he uses. That's that fallen nature that's tempted to follow these lower impulses in us and put self before other people. Um, put self before honor. Put self before God. Paul says in Galatians 5.17 the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. So there's a battle between the flesh and this new heart that the spirit has given us that wants to do the right thing. We want to do right if we're a true Christian. But if we don't fight the flesh it might overtake us because there's a battle going on. We still have that flesh. We still have dark motives that prompt us to think certain ways to act in certain ways to do certain things Paul says in Colossians 3 5 therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead 
to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. He wouldn't say consider it dead if it wasn't still kicking in some way. So it's still there. So you have to regard it as dead. I am dead to that thing. I'm not going to do that anymore. Same with Romans chapter 6 verse 12. Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as members of, as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So this is a conscious decision we have to be making in an ongoing sort of way to present ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. Ananias wasn't doing that. He wasn't doing that. He was in his own thing, his own greed thing, his own self-exaltation thing, and he wasn't thinking about God at all. So there are all kinds of biblical ways to, to test yourself and your motives um, and see where the devil might be trying to fill your heart with things that are sinful. And we can measure ourselves by scripture, like I was saying. One thing would be the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are those things going on? And if they're not, where are we falling short of those things? Measure yourself by those fruit of the spirit things, Galatians 5.22. We can measure ourselves by James' definition of wisdom where he contrasts, contrasts devilish wisdom with divine wisdom. It's really an amazing passage in James chapter 3, verse 13. Very fitting for our times, I should say. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. The wisdom for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Wouldn't it be great if everyone lived that way? Which kind of wisdom does Ananias have? It's earthly, natural, and demonic. Bitter jealousy, jealous of Barnabas perhaps, or the recognition other people have, and selfish ambition, the, the desire to be seen as virtuous, more virtuous than he is by other men. And, and greed, of course. Now except for those who knew Jesus well, all of the thousands of men and women in Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem church there, they're new believers, right? I mean, they're only weeks or months old as, as Christians. So they're enthusiastic, they're excited, they're doing all these wonderful things, but they're not mature saints. So it's understandable that some are gonna be blowing it. They need to grow. But that does not excuse sin. In fact, God determined that this was the time for an example. So Acts chapter 5 verse 5. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men got up and covered him up. 
and after carrying him out, they buried him. He just dropped dead. Uh, Peter didn't kill him. Uh, Peter asked him questions. That's what Peter did. God killed Ananias. The wages of sin is death. It really is death. The wages of sin is death because that's what sin really deserves. All sin, all sin. Just like the one bite, the one bite from that forbidden fruit in the garden, it destroyed the world for generation after generation after generation after generation. Death is earned by sin, that's the wages of sin, because a heart in rebellion against God is a monumental betrayal of everything we were created to be. It ruins and spoils a perfect universe that God made. The heart, the heart of man has led to abuse and hostility and greed and arrogance and injustice and crime and war and lying and cheating and stealing and infidelity and broken promises and slander and self-righteousness and corruption and every bad thing you can think of. It all comes out of the heart. Jesus said that. All sin comes out of the heart of man. Sin is a murderer of truth and righteousness and hope. Sin deserves death at the hands of a holy and righteous God. And yet, most of us live for a time. We go on for such and such number of years. And there's a reason for that. There are you know, key moments in redemptive history when God does act quickly and divisively against sin. Of course, he brought huge judgments on faithless Israel in the, in the wilderness by the many thousands of people uh, when they chose to pick idolatry later in their history he brought judgments upon them two great calamities foreign conquests and all of those kind of things but there are individual cases in the old testament as well sort of like ananias is the the one case in the new testament one would be aaron's aaron's two sons his oldest sons nadab and abihu they were to follow their father's steps uh, as the high priests of Israel. That's what their job was. They were included in all the major events going on then, the high deliberations going on amongst the leadership in Israel. They were in charge of worship in the tabernacle. And one day, they decided to fool around in the holy place. And apparently they were drunk and offered strange fire to the Lord. They m- didn't worship God as he ordered. They did something funny or different or something like that, blatantly disregarding God's commandments for worship. They acted like God was not really there. They acted like he didn't even exist. That he hadn't, he hadn't spoken or given these commands. So Leviticus 10.2 says that fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, their dad, it is what the Lord spoke saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. And that's not all that happened. A little bit later, it says, Moses said to Aaron and to his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, the two next sons, do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes. That's the way people used to mourn. They'd take their turban off and shake out their hair and tear their garments. He says, don't do that. So that you will not die. And that he will not become wrathful against all the congregation. But your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, they shall bewail the burning which the Lord has brought about. 
You shall not even go out from the doorway of the tent of meeting or you will die. For the Lord's anointing oil is upon you. So they did according to the word of Moses it says. They were not to mourn for these men. Why? Because Aaron and his sons, his surviving sons as priests were representative they were represent, representing the holiness of God to the people. And so it was a right thing that God did that. And they were not to grieve the holiness of God. They were re- representing the pure action of God in destroying those two, two younger men. So the people can mourn, but not God's representatives because it was the right thing that he did. Another refusal to have regard for God's holiness was many years later when David sought to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And the priests were commanded by God in the law of Moses to always carry the Ark on these poles. If you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know what that looks like. But it was a long way to go. So they decided to put the Ark on a cart, a a brand new cart, just fitting for something appropriate as holy as the Ark. And sure enough, along the way, the oxen that were pulling the cart got spooked and the whole thing started to tip a little bit and there was a risk of the ark actually falling onto the ground because they weren't carrying it the right way. So the priest Uzzah reached out to steady it. And you're not supposed to touch the ark. And when he touched it, he just dropped dead. 2 Samuel 6, 7. The anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. That irreverence started when they decided to carry the ark the wrong way. And then when he touched it, that was the clear act of, that was the culmination of that sinful heart attitude. And so God killed him on the spot. Another case of disobedience. Oh, it was such a small thing, wasn't it really? Hey, the wages of sin is death. Why does this happen? in these certain cases. It happens so that we know. We know how God feels about it. How he feels about our sin. It doesn't happen very often. A quick, direct, earthly death. Instant judgment. That actually is the proper and suitable punishment for all sin. All sin. Every sin I commit, the proper punishment is I die immediately. That would be perfectly just. So the question is not why does this happen? The question is why doesn't this happen all the time? Why doesn't this happen to me? Because God has a plan for history and if we were all dead that plan would not go forward. That's one reason. And the most important part of the plan is redemption. God is saving millions and millions of sinners like me who deserve death all over the world. His love is that great that he is saving people worthy of death. God came to earth in history in Jesus of Nazareth to die for our sins, to make us acceptable to God through the blood of Jesus. He died in our place. He undoes all that sin did. He repairs the relationship that was broken by our sin, our relationship with God. He pays the debt to God's holiness so we can be reconciled to the Father. For us then who belong to him all we need are just a few examples. Ananias, Nadab and Abihu, Uzzah, 
The examples are in the scriptures for us. And we see by those examples that sin is very, very serious. And it's our duty to battle sin in us, to repent of it, to grow in grace, to mature in Christ so our sins become fewer and our hearts become truer, truer to our obligations to God. If we believe, then all we should need is just one example, right, to know that holiness matters to God. And Ananias is the one example in the New Testament of this. We have this one New Testament example of a professing believer who did not regard God as holy and he received the wage that he earned instantly that's what we need to know our sins are serious to God they matter none of them are small did I say one New Testament example actually there are two New Testament examples remember Acts chapter 5 verse 1 it says Ananias' wife knew about the money and the lie and she was on board with it. Acts chapter 5 verse 7 says, Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. See, her husband had given the price amount. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. That's equality of the sexes, I guess. Equally responsible, responsible equally, equally sinful, equally punished. Why do you suppose, what do you suppose happened as a result of this miracle? When that happens at a church, um, quite that dramatically, what do you suppose would be the general response? Verse 11 says, great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. Yeah, I think that would be the appropriate response. Wow, that could happen to me. It had its effect. It had its effect. Why would everyone fear? Because we all sin and the wages of sin is death. So I'm sure Ananias and, Sire, Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira believed that their sin was small. I'm sure they believed that. A white lie, easily rationalized. You know, not everybody really needs to know our business. We don't have to share all of that information. We can just say what we want about it. But God knows. He knows all of our business. And He's holy. And we are directly accountable, not to the church, but to Him. This happened... And it's included here to remind us that sin is serious. And to remind us that if we love God, we're going to go to war with sin when we find it in ourselves. Are you battling your sin or are you getting comfortable with it? Go to war. Grow in grace. Mature. Put things aside. Regard those sinful impulses, the old nature, the things that Satan would like to fill our hearts with as dead. You're dead to those things. You're in Christ now. Transform your heart. Grow in grace. Repent of your sins. Examine your motives. Reject those that are wrong. And do better. That's the message. Let's pray. Our great God, our most holy Lord and King, you alone are good.
we are sinners. We're fit for the fire, but we are rescued by your grace. And not only that, you've given us a new heart, a new heart that loves you, that wants to do your bidding. Don't let us slip away from that or get lazy about it or retreat into sins that we were formerly guilty of, but help us to grow beyond them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. The story continues next time. <laughs>